Good morning, church. So very good to see you this morning. As always, I love you and I appreciate you. I also love my family, obviously, um, and, and because I love my family, I'm always looking for uh, new, new apps that can help, you know, especially as a parent, and uh, we, I've heard lots of people talk about this Life360 app. I don't know if you've seen this. Maybe you have the Life360 app, but I thought, hey, that sounds like a really good idea. You know, it kind of helps you keep tabs on your family. This isn't a commercial for Life360 app, but um, I, I thought this, this will be helpful. It'll keep, help us keep an eye on our teenagers. I didn't realize, I didn't realize, so if you haven't downloaded this app, maybe you should realize this. I didn't realize that it also sends a driving report to whoever wants it, which means that my wife gets a notification about my driving every time I drive somewhere. So the added benefit of the app is that now Holly gets to comment on my driving even when she's not in the car. You know what I'm saying? But in her defense, in her defense, that when she does comment on my driving, a lot of times I, I desperately need those comments. I, I have a tendency to drive slower than the speed limit, believe it or not, and she would say, do you know it's 55? Do you know, do you know it's 55? And sometimes when she says, do you know that they're stopping up ahead? I didn't know that they were stopping up ahead. And her favorite is when I forget that my turn signal is on for miles and miles. She loves when I do that. So she, she makes comments about my driving, but oftentimes I need those comments. I need, I need that help. And that brings us to our question uh, for today in our series about family road trips is whose turn is it to drive? Whose turn is it to drive? Oftentimes, both in the car and just in life, who's in the driver's seat can cause some tension, can't it? Since, since the fall, even in the best relationships, even in the best relationships, both marriages and, and parenting with parents and children and siblings and even bosses and employees, in every relationship, even the best ones, there's some tension when it comes to who's calling the shots, who's in charge, who gets to decide what we're going to do and how we're going to do it? And, and the person that's in charge, how do they lead? And, and how does someone who's not in charge follow? And, and what is their attitude supposed to be towards the person who is in charge? Th these, are, these are things that every single family struggles with, isn't it? Things that, that you struggle with, maybe, again, in your, in your relationship with your spouse or your relationship with your kids or your relationship with your parents or, or maybe, even, maybe even at work, we, we struggle with these in every relationship that we have. Who's in charge? How are they leading? And how do we respond when someone else is in charge? How do we live in these kinds of relationships? How do we navigate these things? And Paul gives us instructions to tell us, now that you're Christians, now that you're Christians, now that you're in Christ, now that the Spirit of God is living in you, here's the way your family life should look. Here's how you should live as followers of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 15. And again, Paul's instructing them. He's given them in the first three chapters of Ephesians all of this theological truth. Here's, here's what it means to be a Christian. Here's what it means to be in Christ. 
Here's what it means to have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. And then in chapter 4, he begins to transition to, okay, practically speaking, what does this mean? What does it look like? How do you live with the Spirit of God living in you? How do you live as new creation people? How do you put off the old self and put on the new self? And here's part of what he says in Ephesians 5. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And that's what we want to know, isn't it? What's the will of the Lord? How should I, how should I live my life in really practical terms? What does it look like to live as a follower of Jesus? Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery. In other words, that's excessive indulgence that will ruin your life. But be, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's all, that's all one sentence. Here's, here's what you're supposed to be doing. Here's what your life should look like. Here's what Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, here's what every day as a follower of Jesus should look like. Not getting drunk with wine, but being filled with the Holy Spirit. Singing and making music, not only to the Lord, but addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This should, this should be the way that you live your life. And what does this look like? It looks like, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another, yielding to one another, letting other people be in the driver's seat. Letting other people be in the driver's seat, not constantly saying, I want to be in charge, I want to call the shots, I want to have things my way, but submitting to one another. Now, what does that look like when it comes to, to family? What does that look like when it comes to work? What does that look like in, in very real, practical terms? It, it can't always mean that we stand at the door and say, you go first. No, 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 you, you go first. You, I, I insist, you go first. You, you make the decisions. I don't care. Whatever you want to do, it can't always look like that. But this needs to be the default position of every follower of Jesus, where we are constantly, the way Paul says it in Philippians 2, where we have the mind of Christ and we consider others to be more, more, more significant than ourselves. And we're looking out for the interests of others and not just our own interests. Now, Paul's going to go through here in just a second. And he's going to talk about wives and children and servants and he's not going to say, hey, you're done submitting. You don't have to submit anymore. No, he's not going to say that. He's going to say that they do need to submit, but he's going to change why they submit. Why they submit. Because now it's not because of what anybody says about you. Because in every era, there have been people that have told others that they need to submit because they're insignificant. Because they're less than. But Paul actually elevates the status of people like wives and children 
and servants and says, now you are going to submit to one another. All of y'all, all y'all are going to submit to one another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. You're all, in a sense, on equal footing. You all answer to Jesus and you're going to submit, yes, and you're going to yield to others. And there's going to be times where you're in the passenger seat and there's going to be times where other people are in charge. There's going to be times where other people are calling the shots and you're going to submit to that, not, not because you're less than them, not because they're, they're smarter than you or stronger than you or better than you, but because of your relationship to Jesus, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, because you're a servant of Jesus, just like hopefully they're a servant of Jesus, you are going to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, not just out of reverence for them. Maybe, maybe they're not the kind of person that's easy to submit to or to yield to, but you're going to submit to one another because you revere Jesus, because of who you are in Christ. And it changes every relationship that we have, doesn't it? It's supposed to change every relationship that we have. Now listen what he says. He says, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This text, the entire text that we're going to read this morning, is difficult because it has been abused and misused for centuries. Abused and misused for centuries. Parts of it have been taken out of context and weaponized against other people. Instead of taking logs out of our own eye, we have used it as a bullet or a weapon against other people. Now, listen to what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, wives, you're not allowed to have opinions. He doesn't say, wives, you're not allowed to disagree. He doesn't, he's not saying wives need to submit to things that are abusive or to do things that are wrong. Why? Because Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus wouldn't command that. Listen to what he says. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to whom? The Lord. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, now here's, where, here's where we do have to make some application. And here's where it's really tough. Speak to your husband. Treat your husband the way you would treat Jesus. A couple weeks ago, we had a communion focus. And we were challenged to think about if Jesus were sitting at the communion table across from you, what would you say to him? What would you say to Jesus? What would you say to Jesus? That's one reason I like shows and movies that portray Jesus, not because they ever portray him 100% accurately, but I love to imagine what would it be like to just hang out with Jesus? What would it be like to sit at the table with Jesus, to talk with Jesus to, to pour out my heart to him face to face where I could see him and he could see me. Paul says, wives, here's what you need to do. However it is that you would speak to Jesus, however it is that you would submit to Jesus, however it is you would treat Jesus 
as a follower of his, as a disciple of his, as someone who has been saved by him and changed by him and indwelt by the Holy Spirit because of him, that's how you talk to and treat your husband. So, so this year we're all about reflect and renew. So let's ask ourselves, wives, ask yourselves, how would I speak to and treat Jesus? How would I speak to and treat Jesus? Imagine what, what that would be like And then ask yourself, how is that different from the way I speak to and treat my husband? Again, that doesn't mean you can't have an opinion. It doesn't mean you can't disagree. It doesn't mean you can't voice your thoughts. But it does mean mean you have to stop and ask yourself, am I talking to him the way I would talk to Jesus? Am I treating him the way I would treat Jesus? Jesus, because that's what Paul says. He says, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Doesn't mean they are the Lord. It doesn't even mean that they're necessarily acting like the Lord. But it means that you talk to them and treat them that way, not because of who they are necessarily, but because of who you are in Christ Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done for you, it has to change how you treat everyone, and that has to be lived out in your home. It has to be lived out in the way you speak to and treat your husbands. Now, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what it means to be the head of a household. This is what it means to be the head of the household. Husbands who have taken this idea and have used it to say, I'm in charge, I get to have things my way, I get to call the shots, aren't really listening to what Paul is saying to husbands. This is what it means to be the man of the house. It means you love your wife as Christ loved the church. It's about taking responsibility. It's about caring for the sanctity, the purity, the splendor, the holiness of your spouse. It's about giving yourself up for her. Giving yourself up for her. Sacrificing yourself for her. Treat your wife the way Jesus would treat the church. Again, not because she necessarily is acting that way, but because that's who you are supposed to be in Christ Jesus. Do you see how it changes everything? How both for the husband and for the wife, the husband who's trying to follow Jesus, the wife who's trying to follow Jesus, we respond to our spouse not because of who they are necessarily, but because of who we are in Christ Jesus. And the wife thinks, how would I, how would I talk to Jesus? How would I treat Jesus? How would I respond to Jesus? And the husband thinks, how did, how did Jesus treat his bride? The church. 
What did he do for her? How did he give himself up for her? Going on, verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. You see? You see, this, this is what it means to be the head of a household. This is what it means to be the man of the house. It's not about, <laughs> I get to be in charge, people have to do things my way. No, it's about nourishing and cherishing your spouse. It's about giving yourself up for her. It's about constantly, constantly reflecting on the cross of Jesus Christ, having the cross at the forefront of your mind, thinking that's what Jesus did for his bride, and that's what I need to do for mine. I need to love my wife the way Jesus was willing to give everything for the church. So husbands, ask yourselves, how did Jesus demonstrate love and care for his people? How did Jesus demonstrate love and care for his people? He gave himself up for his people. And how is that different from the way I demonstrate love and care for my wife? Think about the last argument that you had, the last disagreement that you had. Think about the way you talk to your wife. And ask yourself, can you imagine Jesus talking to his disciples that way? Can you imagine Jesus treating his people the way you treat your wife? Was Jesus in charge of his disciples? Was he the head of his disciples? Sure he was. But how did he lead? How did he sit in the driver's seat? He gave himself up. He sacrificed himself. He went to the cross. He gave everything for his people. He loved them with tenderness and compassion. He nourished them. He cherished them. And he does to this day. That is what is supposed to be at the forefront of your mind as you lead your family, as you love your family. Look at verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He goes all the way back to Genesis, and he says, this, this quote, this idea that's been guiding marriage for thousands of years Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He said, it's actually a mystery, a mystery that's been hidden and now is revealed. That marriage, marriage has always been a picture of Jesus and the church. And that's, what, that's the way you're supposed to live out your marriage. You're supposed to reflect on Jesus and the church every time you interact with your spouse. If you're a husband, you're supposed to reflect on how did Jesus demonstrate his love and care for the church and then do that for your wife. If you're a wife, you're supposed to reflect on how does the church respond to Jesus and respond that way to your husband so that you live out this constant demonstration, this parable of Christ and the church 
in your relationship. Now, we need to understand, this has never been normal. This has never been normal. It wasn't normal prior to Jesus for husbands and wives to live this way in harmony and respect and kindness and tenderness in self-giving love. It was not normal prior to Jesus. Sadly, it wasn't even normal after Jesus. It wasn't normal in the first century. This was countercultural then. Believe it or not, in the 1950s, it was also countercultural. Again, people have mistreated their spouses since the beginning. There has been tension and there has been conflict. And Jesus and the Holy Spirit are coming into our lives, invading our lives, saying there's got to be a new way of living out the gospel within your family, within your marriage relationships. And this is what it looks like. Continuing on, chapter 6 and verse 1. Children, you're not getting off the hook. Children, (laughs) obey your parents. In the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Again, children are supposed to obey in the same way that Paul talks to wives and to husbands. Say, everything you do, do it with an eye to the Lord. Everything you do, do it with your eye on the cross. Even children are supposed to live with their parents in that kind of a way. Are supposed to obey your parents in the Lord. Not not because what your parents always what your parents say always makes sense. Not not because you always agree with it. Sometimes we think, well, I have to agree in order to obey. Nope, you don't. I have to understand in order to obey. You don't. You don't. You don't. You obey in the Lord because this is right. You obey because it's right. Again, Paul isn't telling them to submit to or obey things that are wrong. He's telling them to obey things that are right because they're right. Not because you understand, not because you get it, not because you agree, but because it's right to obey them the way you would obey Jesus. And he says, actually, this is for your benefit. This is going to benefit you to obey your parents in the Lord. So children, ask yourselves, how would I respond to Jesus telling me what to do? And how is that different from the way I respond to my parents? Sometimes, again, the way we would respond to a stranger is sometimes better than the way we respond to the people in our own family. But Paul tells us, Respond to your family, husbands, wives, children. Respond to your family the way you would respond to Jesus. Listen to them, love them, treat them with an eye to Jesus. And then he goes on to parents. Again, you're not getting off the hook either. So verse 4, fathers, and I would assume this also includes mothers, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of of the Lord. You see, all of this overlaps with each other, doesn't it? He says, fathers, you've got to treat your children like Jesus would treat them, which means you have to care about their feelings. Can you imagine how radical this was in the first century world? Fathers, 
Don't provoke your children to anger. You need to care about their feelings. Just because you're in the driver's seat, parents, doesn't mean you get to treat your children however you want. You have to treat them with the same kind of tenderness and compassion and humility and care that Jesus would. So parents, ask yourselves, how would Jesus teach and train a child to follow him? Because that's what Paul says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up to follow Jesus. So how would Jesus go about that? How can you imagine Jesus speaking with his disciples? If Jesus was going to take some, some little children and he was going to teach them, this is, this is what it means to follow me. This is how you follow me. Imagine that. Picture that in your mind. How would Jesus teach children to follow him? And then ask yourselves, how is that different from the way I parent my children? Do you parent your children the way Jesus would parent your children? Do you parent your children the way Jesus would speak to someone he was training, disciplining to follow him and be his disciple? Verse 5. Bondservants. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Again, as I said, this entire text has been misused and abused and weaponized. Paul wasn't in any way justifying slavery. Of course, slavery in the Roman world was different than slavery was in, in the Americas that we're familiar with. But in no place was Paul justifying it or saying it was good or saying it was right. It was just simply the way life was. And so he was teaching them, okay, some of you are bondservants. So how do you live out the gospel within the context of your particular situation? And he actually, again, elevates their status. Do you see how he elevates their status? Because he says, actually, you're a servant of the Most High King. You're a servant of the Most High King. Now, listen, those, those people say you're inferior. You're not inferior. You're a servant of Christ. You are a servant of Christ. You answer to Jesus. You serve him. And when you serve your earthly master, don't worry, don't worry about the earthly master. You, you are actually serving Christ. Do you see how he elevates the status of the servant? He says, actually, you are you're serving Jesus. The work that you're doing is religious work. And maybe, maybe your master won't repay you all your hard work and your service the way that he should. He should. He should pay you. He should reward you for all your blood and sweat and tears. He should, he should reward you, but maybe he won't. Maybe he won't. But you know who will? Jesus will. Jesus will. Jesus will reward every drop of perspiration. Jesus will reward every minute that you serve because you're not actually serving that guy. You're serving Jesus. You're serving Jesus, so serve like that. Now again, we can live this out in our context as well, can't we? 
when we go to work, when we find ourselves in any situation where we're not in the driver's seat. Serve as if you're serving Jesus. Not because of who that person is, whoever's in the driver's seat, but because of who Jesus is and because of who you are in Christ. Jesus has elevated your status so that now whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing, whether you're changing diapers or you're loving your spouse or you're going to work, what you're actually doing is serving Christ. What you're actually doing is serving Christ. And maybe nobody appreciates you the way that they should. You know who does? Jesus. He appreciates you, and he will reward every drop of perspiration, every minute of service you put in, because you're actually serving him. So serve like that. And then he says, verse 9, masters, do the same to them. I love that. That's one of my favorite phrases in Ephesians. Do the same to them. Do, do the same to them. Masters, do the same to them. What, what was the same? What were servants supposed to do? Serve as if you're serving Christ. <laughs> Don't you love it? Uh, can you imagine how radical this is, how countercultural this is to tell masters, hey, masters, listen, you need to serve your servants as if you're serving Christ. Serve your servants as if you're serving Christ. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. As far as God's concerned, your siblings, your brothers, you're no better. So you serve him the way he serves you, or rather, the way you would serve Christ. Do you see how this permeates every single relationship? Every relationship is supposed to be dictated by who is Jesus? And what has Jesus called you to do? If you're in charge, this is how you live in charge. If you're not in charge, here's how you live not in charge. When you're in the driver's seat, allow the tenderness, compassion, and self-giving love of Jesus to guide your decision-making. All of us are going to find times where we're in the driver's seat. Maybe at home, maybe at work, maybe in the neighborhood, maybe in the church, wherever it is, there's going to be times where you're in the driver's seat. This idea where you get to bang your fist and you get to be a tyrant and dictate and say, I'm in charge, you have to listen to me, this is not the way of Christ. This is not the way of Christ. If you're in the driver's seat, in whatever area you're in, if you're in the driver's seat, then you have to allow the tenderness, the compassion, the humility, the self-giving love of Jesus to guide your decision-making. You have to love the rest of the people in your car, whatever your car is, the way Jesus loves the church. If you're in the driver's seat, this is the way you drive. If you're leading, this is the way you lead. If you're making decisions and you have the responsibility to make decisions for other people, whether it's two or 10 or 200, this is the way. No longer as a dictator, no longer threatening, no longer saying you have to do things my way. That is not the way of Christ. But there'll be other times where all of us find ourselves in a situation where we're not in the driver's seat, where we yield to someone else, where someone else is driving, where someone else is making the decisions. And when you're not in the driver's seat, respond as if Jesus is. 
respond to whoever is in the driver's seat as if Jesus is in the driver's seat, as if Jesus is in charge. Why? Well, because ultimately, he is. Ultimately, he is. He's the one in the driver's seat. He's the one in charge. He's the one who will repay. He's the one who will reward. So we can respond in whatever situation we're in with peace, with calm, because we know that Jesus is going to take care of us. It can make us incredibly anxious when we're not the one driving, when we're not the one in charge, when we're not the one calling the shots. But as followers of Jesus, we learn that it's okay to submit to one another because of our reverence for Christ, because we know Jesus is in charge, because we know Jesus will take care of us, because we know that Jesus will set everything right. There are some people who are not very good at being in charge, not very good at being in the driver's seat, but ultimately, they're not. It's Jesus who's in the driver's seat. So we can respond to one another as if we're responding to Christ because we trust, we believe that he is in charge. This is the life we surrendered ourselves to when we became Christians, where we're forgiven of our sins, when we're baptized into Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then we begin to live out this new life that touches every area of our life, whether we're at home, or we're at church, or we're at school, or we're at work, we respond this way because Jesus is living in us. And maybe there's somebody here this morning and you're ready to make that decision, to surrender your life to Jesus, or maybe you need to recommit your life to him, or you just need prayers. Our elders would love to meet with you in the prayer room, or you could come forward now. As together we stand and sing this song.